0: Welcome to Pin the Cue Productions. If you are interested in the culture of the fire service and keeping tradition alive, you have come to the right place. Now sit back and relax with your brothers and sisters and enjoy the show. Be sure to like and subscribe on all social media platforms: Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. For more information on Pin the Cue Productions, visit www pinthecube.com. This episode is sponsored by All Hands Fire Equipment. Founded in 2001 and family owned and operated, carrying the best tools for the toughest job. All Hands offers a wide variety of training classes that can be delivered at their training center or a location of your choice. All Hands Fire equipment is located in Central Jersey at number 7 3rd Avenue in Neptune City. Their store hours are Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. For more information on products or training, or to request a product quote, visit our website at www.allhandsfire.com or call us today at one. Everyone, welcome back to Pin the Cube Podcast. We are in New York and we are episode 40. Chief, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So we are in New York. Uh, Ray and I took a nice trip uh, over some bridges too. Bridges to be exact. Uh, But it's always a good time when we get out there and, uh, and take these trips to New York. Last time we were out this way, it was Freeport. Um, so we're very close to that, correct? Right, correct, correct. Um, so, Chief, why don't you tell everybody who you are?
1: Okay, uh, my name is Don Hayde. Um just retired from the New York City Fire Department, did 41 years, <clears throat> was uh, battalion commander of the Rescue Battalion, and uh, kind of got my start in the fire service out, out here on Long Island uh, before I got on the job.
0: So we're going to talk about some of those uh, early starts for you, Chief, and, and uh, one I'd like to... First, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Sure. Um, you know, as over my right shoulder, as you'll see, um, this is this is quite a career with the FDNY, um, starting with the 16 truck and all the way on to being a rescue battalion, which is an amazing uh, feat and, and something to be uh, certainly proud of. So uh, again, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you. So Chief, we always like to ask these questions um, with firefighters, especially senior guys, um, and, and that is... How did this all start for you as a, as a firefighter?
1: Um, where I grew up in a town about five miles from here, Uniondale, Long Island. And uh, my grandfather was a founding member of the fire department out there in 1924. And then my father joined in 1940. And, you know, like a lot of guys, I was a little firehouse rug rat um, around the firehouse with my father and I uh, just had an inherent interest in the fire service and uh, joined the volunteers in Uniondale when I was 18. And uh, you know, decided I wanted to do it for a living if I if I could, and when I got out of the Marine Corps, um, you know, I'd already taken the test for FDNY, and I got appointed in 1977. So, wow. uh, you know, everything kind of kind of worked out.
0: You know, when you you look at uh, the time that you have, and then you know, we retired. How, how much different is the fire service from when you when you got on the job in FDNY? I mean, compared to what you're seeing now,
1: mm-hmm. um, I, I think whether it's the fire department, the Marine Corps business. Um, people look back on the past and they think, uh, you know, their generation was the best and whatnot. I think, um, you know, to a certain extent, I, I see certain things I wish they would have remained the same, but I think they've made huge inroads as far as, uh, training, uh, in-service training. Uh, when I went through Proby school, it was only six weeks. Now it's now it's six months. And, uh, I think it was, uh, Frank Brannigan says in his book to be, uh, you know, to be, forewarned is to be forearmed. So the more knowledge you have, uh, the better off you're going to be on the fire ground.
0: Absolutely. And take me back to, you know, probie school. I mean, what was that like for you to get to get on the job and finally get that, you know, then press your butt and you're going to the mm-hmm. fire academy? What was that like?
1: Oh, it was like a dream come true. I remember uh, uh, that that summer I had taken the test in 71. And, this, you know, in the interim, I'd gone in the Marine Corps and the city went belly up uh, with the fiscal crisis and whatnot. And then the summer of 77, they had the, the blackout with the riots and then hired a number of guys in a number of years so rather than take the time to give a new test and whatnot they got a court injunction they were able to hire a thousand guys off my old list and uh i remember you know waiting that summer when i heard about it um uh, i was so keyed up i remember telling my mailman i'm expecting something from the you know New York City Fire Department. I said, you know, give me a call when it comes. And he called me from the post office that morning. About no kidding. 815, 8, jumped in my car, went to the post office and uh, i forget the guy's name, Billy Haran. I was ready to kiss the guy. <laughs>
0: it's, it's cool when you, you know, you hear things like that. And today, everything with technology is just so instantaneous. Right, right. You know, we actually talk about that over supper, how, how instantaneous technology is now. Mm-hmm. But to think that, that's pretty cool. You know, you, you know, you talk to the mailman right. and say, Hey, can you give me a phone call? And that's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. And it you know, do you get that phone call and now you're accepted today FDNY walk me kind of through that for you when you first got to probie school, what were you thinking?
1: Uh, again, it was, you know, I just kept pinching myself. I couldn't believe, uh, you know, I actually got what I wanted. I mean, you know, some people might look at the job as a, a fireman. It's kind of a humble, uh, humble occupation. You know, a lot of my friends had gone to college, had the master's degrees. They were working on wall street. But, uh, again, I knew this was, this was for me. And, uh, you know, we had a carpool, myself and three other guys from the area here, we carpooled uh, before we school together, and Friday afternoons, we'd stop by the volunteer firehouse and have a couple beers and whatnot, and unfortunately, one of the guys in our carpool, uh, within the first two years on the job, he got killed in the fire in Macy's, Walter Smith, uh, again, great guy, uh, fellow ex-Marine, Vietnam vet, and, uh, you know, that was kind of a sobering um, reality check that, Hey, this is a great job and whatnot, but there's uh, sometimes a price to pay, and uh, you know, kind of hits you between the eyes when somebody you knew that that well that young too to the line of duty. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the thing about the job and
0: and you just said it, which was great, was you know, it, it kind of steps you back a minute and take a look at the what actually this is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so huge; it's, right. it's so much bigger than all of us. Uh, and, and I'm sorry to hear that that you lost, and that's mm-hmm. terrible. So after Proby school. Your first assignment was 16 truck.
1: Yeah, 16 truck on the upper uh, Upper East Side. Um, again, I guess everything's relative. I guess you know we we're doing maybe 2,800 runs a year. Um, you know, the Upper East Side, of Manhattan. The Russian Russian Mission was right across the street from us. It was kind of kind of known as the Silk Stocking District. And um, you know, in the winter time, I just remember it was uh, you know very busy up in Harlem. And pretty much every night we'd get relocated to either 26 truck, or 40 truck, and whatnot. And you know. Even though I you know, enjoyed 16 truck and the guys down there, a lot of old timers. I mean, World War II vets were still working when when I came on. Uh, I just wanted to go someplace a little bit busier. And uh, just under a year, I put a put a paper in and transferred to 26 truck up in Harlem. So, uh, you know, that was a great experience working up there, kind of uh, tail end of the war years and uh, going a lot of fires.
0: Yeah, I mean, those days you guys were running on fires. Yeah, were oh, going yeah. fires. Yeah. 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 And it's a big difference from runs and fires. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, walk me through what the culture was like in those days when you, when you got on, like, even 16 truck. What was the culture like at the firehouse? Yeah. What was um, it like?
1: Um, again, tra- um, you know, training wasn't as amped up <clears throat> as it was, as it is today. And it was more or less, uh, you know, just kind of keep your ears open, your mouth shut, and, uh, you know, you'll pick things up, and, which you did. And, um, again, you, you, you had to learn. It was just, you know, much, much busier back then. And, um, you know, things weren't quite as formalized as they are, are now. Um, you know, I think it was more or less more of a, you know, fun, fun-fire department. Right, right. Uh, you know, we didn't get bogged down in the minutia of today, but again, it's, you know, it's, it's all necessary. Things evolve. I mean, that's why dinosaurs aren't around now. Uh, <laughs> but, uh. Yeah, it was uh, it was just a great time. Plus, you know, being young, single, uh, not being an officer, you know, you didn't have a care in the world. Just kind of uh, follow the boss. And I was fortunate to work with uh, uh, great officers up in Twenty Six Truck: Bob Cantillo, Tom Kennedy, uh, Jack Fanning, uh, Jack Calkin. I mean, just it was like the nineteen twenty seven uh, New York Yankees, just that's you awesome. row. Well. They were just great, great officers.
0: Do you remember your first job, Chief?
1: Um. Yeah, my first job in 16 truck was a cell of fire in a uh, dress shop on uh, 3rd Avenue. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was hot, and uh, I feel like I quitted myself all right. You know, the captain was working, and uh, you know, he even asked me, he said, uh, when we got done, he said, uh, hey, you want to volley's out there on Long Island? I said, yeah. He said, no, it looks like you've done this before, you know. <laughs> but, uh, again, they were just, you know, back then, all the guys on the job were going to a lot of fires. right. So I just felt humbled. I mean, I was just walking in the shadows of great guys,
0: right? And looking back at your experience, I mean, you probably didn't care anything about the paycheck.
1: You were just happy to just happy to be there, right? Oh yeah, I mean that was the no, not like joke about it, but I mean, uh, you know, you you're doing it for volunteering all these years, and here you're getting uh, you know adequate adequate paycheck. Again, being single didn't have too much responsibility as far as financial uh, uh, responsibilities. So uh, yeah, it was just. Uh, it's a great life. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, the kitchen, the
0: culture in the kitchen of the firehouse, because we we often talk about this, and I I love getting perspective from other guys about what that means to you.
1: Um, I think it's you can break down in several phases. Um, you know, sometimes you have you know the group together. You know, you're getting the the meal prepared, and you're breaking each other's chops, and I mean the humor is just. Beyond belief, I always said that would make a great, great TV show. Just to put some cameras in the firehouse and listen to the—can't say ball breaking. Yeah, of course. Uh, you, know, you can say whatever you want. Uh, you know, listen to the ball breaking and the and the jokes and the humor. I mean, you just laugh till you just about cry, and then uh, you know, you'd also critique fires. You know, you talk about past fires, and it got a little more serious about uh, positioning, and you picked up little tricks of the trade, and then uh, you know, you always had like that. Two o'clock in the morning discussion with another guy in the kitchen, just you and him, you know, talking about something personal. Maybe he was going through something in his his life or something with his family or, you know, talking about religion or philosophy. And it was uh it was just great. Like I said, it was a, it was always something in the kitchen on, on, on different levels. Right.
0: People often uh refer to it as, you know, solving all the world's problems in the right. firehouse kitchen. I mean you know, I talk to guys and they say, "Oh yeah, I remember doing schematics on the wall on my furnace that was broke." Yeah. Or we talked about, you know, building a shed. Whatever it was, yeah. it was always talked about in the firehouse kitchen. Would you, would you say the same for you guys? Oh yeah,
1: and then uh, you know, the humor is so different. I mean, uh, you're so used to dealing with firemen all the time and all brand of humor, and then all of a sudden you find yourself at a barbecue with your wife and family, and you know, you come out with what you think is funny, and you know, people start giving you a sidelong <laughs> glance, but, right. like, you know, where's where's this nitwit coming from? Right. So, um, you know, firemen are special, special breed. I think we have our own uh, gallows humor and way of understanding each other.
0: I, I think really it, it kind of comes back to that's how we process things with humor. I mean, a lot, a lot of guys do, uh, and I know for me it seems to help. You know, so yeah. you know, you always find guys that like-minded individuals that have the same passion right. for the job,
1: and it just automatically happens. You know, you mesh well, with firefighters. Mm. Like my my youngest daughter, she's. We're taking her MCATs, try to get into medical school, and um, she was talking about watching the show on TV, uh, Lenox Hill*. It follows uh, a few doctors and surgeons around, and she was just saying how it's amazing these people can go to, uh, you know, do brain surgery, one minute, and they get done with that, removing a tumor from somebody's brain, and you know, an hour later they're just sitting at a at a meeting, like you know, nothing nothing happens. She goes, I, you know, I don't know how they compartmentalize. I said, well, in some jobs you have to do that. And I think that's what that's what we do, I mean, you, that's go, how to a, you, yeah, you go to a yeah. fire, you go to a person under a train, a space case, you know, guys crushed and entrails and hanging out and whatnot, and again, you know, you feel horrible and whatnot, but, you know, you may have to do it again in another hour, so you, know, you go back to the firehouse, and it's business as usual, go back to, you know, getting dinner ready and breaking, right. each, breaking each other's balls, and uh, again, not that, you, not that you don't feel empathy and, and sorrow for the individual and their family, but... Again, you have a you have a job to do, so right. you should go on with it.
0: And I, again, I think that goes back to what I was saying, as far as you know the, the humor aspect of it. I think that helps a lot of us uh, process those things, Absolutely. you know. And then that's what keeps us what you know keep moving on and keep doing mm-hmm. what we have to do. And and uh, it, that's a great point. So after after sixteen truck, you said you went to twenty six truck. Yeah. And how different was how different
1: was the different was the, uh, the two houses for you? Um, again, just I mean the area uh, sixteen truck was. Upper East Side, like I said, Russian Mission was there. Uh, Fifth Avenue, uh, you know, Jackie Onassis' apartment and things like that. Park Avenue, uh, very, very, probably the most affluent part of New York City. And then going up to Harlem, you know, it was a uh, different... Uh, like diff- culture shock, Different right? culture. Yeah. Uh, at the time, there were a lot of... Uh, heroin was still big. So, uh, you know, you had a lot of junkies, a lot of abandoned vehicles around, uh, a lot of vacant building fires. So it was uh, kind of like night and day. You know, we used to say, like... Ninety-sixth Street was like the, almost like the DMZ, you know, north of Ninety-sixth Street. You know, things started to get a little sketchy as far as crime and uh, the amount of fires and whatnot. So it was definitely uh, a little bit different. What
0: What would you say was probably your most challenging experience being in that house
1: during that time frame? Um, I don't think there was any any one thing. I think all the guys who worked there um, were we were great firemen like I said I can't say enough about the bosses I think it was just trying to stay um, stay on your toes you certainly didn't want to uh, let anybody down right. you know you wanted to be part of uh, what you thought was the greatest firehouse in the world like we always referred to like engine 58 and ladder 26 like rarely did we do anything I can't recall us doing anything separately you know it was never like the engines doing this and the truck is always like 15 26 15 26 it was just that's awesome we, we were a group yeah you know that's amazing. Yeah, and not every house is like that. Every every so, house has yeah has, has its own has its own culture and whatnot. Uh, just like you know, you have different personalities, but uh, yeah, every house has like its own own little nuance to it.
0: So, so tell me about you know you, you're a firefighter, you're a grunt, you're in the you're in the trenches with the guys, and, and you're developing these relationships and these lifelong friendships with with your with your uh, your guys you work with. And tell me what it's like when you start to like think about that promotion. And you want to talk about being a lieutenant? What was that like for you?
1: Um, most of us at the time, uh, with same amount of time on the job, we were all uh, studying. So it was, um, I think, the idea that you were working in a good house. Uh, I thought like I learned a lot. I thought I could I could contribute. You know, uh, leading guys, and uh, you know, there's also a little bit of good nature competition. You know, the guys that you're working with, you're studying together. You know, we'd go to fire tech and we'd have study groups and things like that. And you know, you'd be in the kitchen, getting the meal already and bouncing questions off each other and whatnot. So, uh, yeah. And plus, I think anytime you study, uh, you know, even if you have a bad day and you don't do well on a test, it just makes you better, better fireman, better firefighter, um, you know, gets you into the books. And like I said, you know, knowledge is going to, is what's going to keep you alive out there.
0: Did you, as a senior man in your career, did you try to push education a lot with the new, new, new members coming in?
1: Um, yes and no. Um, that, that, that's actually a very good question. I mean, I know a lot of guys, um, uh, especially look back now uh, in the rescue companies and squads. Um, you know, one guy in particular, Bob, Bobby Thanis. Uh, he's in Rescue Three. Just retired. He drove me for a couple of years, and uh, as far as I was concerned, you know, he had as much right to be sitting on the right side of that that car as, as I did. Um, you know, just because the guy didn't didn't study um, doesn't mean anything. I mean, there's a lot of super super firemen out there full of knowledge for whatever reason they, they didn't want to put the time in or they have a good side job or they're just comfortable, uh, you know, in the position as a firefighter, um, you know, I, I would never harangue somebody to study. I'd always throw it out there and say, you know, uh, uh, it, it certainly wouldn't hurt. You know, you look at it pay-wise and pension-wise and whatnot, but uh, again, what it boils down to is it's, you know, to, to each his own.
0: Right. When you became lieutenant, talk to me a little bit about that experience for you. What was that like for
1: you when you when you got promoted? Um yeah, it was a little scary in the sense that uh I got promoted pretty pretty young. I had maybe an average mark, <clears throat> I think, on the test, but I used my vet's points and uh, you know, I really didn't feel um like there'd be a problem, you know, with with wise firewise or anything. But, you know, you were dealing with older guys and I'll never forget when I was covering in Brooklyn, um, you know, at the start of the tour you'd always you know, you'd have the writing list and you'd always like match. The names to the roster and just see how much time the guy had on the job and what i'll never forget i was working 219 engine and the guy driving me came on the job three months before i was born wow you know so that kind of that kind of humbles you and uh you know i think by and large uh, most guys in the fire department they get the they get the rank structure and very rarely do you have to give a guy a direct order it's usually you know hey you know when you get a chance can you do this or whatever it's kind of implied um but if, if you didn't have that attitude, I think that kind of humbles you when all of a sudden you realize, like, you know, you're, you're, you're the boss of a guy who's, you know, came on the job three months before you were born.
0: And I think that could be challenging for, for anybody, yeah. you know, especially starting out as a new boss and then you're looking at a right. guy like you said.
1: Right. And I think, you know, just, um, you know, using common sense, um, granted, not all the time. Are you going to be able to get a general consensus? I mean, when you pull up to a fire and, you know, you say, you know, stretch inch of three quarters, stretch two and a half, do this, do that. It's not a time for debate. Certain things, it's not a bad idea, I think, as a leader. let go to your senior guy and, uh, you know, say, hey, you know, what, what do think about this? So, you know, you know think about changing this on the apparatus. You know, what do you think? Um, again, you're the boss. We're still going to do it your way, I suppose. But it's always good to get the input. Um, you know, he might know a way to build a better mousetrap, so to speak. And uh, plus it gives guys the ability, at least they feel like they were they were consulted and at least they have a little control, maybe of their their own destiny.
0: Empowering your people is such a beautiful trait as a leader. Right. And and being able to, to see that, that's that's right. great. You know, you had the foresight in seeing that and and believe me, that paid dividends in and your style's leadership, because they all recognize that. Mm-hmm. Any any good firefighter knows that, you know, if the bosses are coming to you and asking for your input, it means something. Right. For both, for both sides, I think. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're you're lieutenant. You know, you're getting used to leading at the FDNY. I'm sure you've been to a a bazillion fires, and each fire is different than Mm -hmm. than the than the one before it. What what was it like for you leading your crew as a lieutenant?
1: Um, You know, I I think I always tried to make. I mean, I always tried to make the right right decision. And, um, you know, in the heat of the moment, you know, you make decisions. I think the important thing is after the fact, uh, you know, I kind of say this a little bit of pride. I've never, I've never come back from a fire saying if I had to go that same fire five minutes from now, that I wouldn't do something different. I always learned something from it. I always believed, um, there was always room for improvement. So like when we came back, if we had a critique, um, you know, some guys, they they may have made a little, you know, screw up or whatever, and they're not that apt to admit it. You know, I always like would start talking about the job and say, well, you know, like, talk about the positive things. I think I did. I say, you know what? I said, I, I missed this, or you know, if I had to do it again, I think you know I should have told us. You know, I should have decided we we, we do this, and then then you go around the table and say, oh, you know, Tommy, what did you do? Billy, what what did you do? And this way, I think maybe the fact that you might have admitted that there's room for improvement on, on your part, you know, same thing with these guys. They would say, well, you know, maybe I, I could have done something a little bit different or, uh, you know, I'd I, I rethink my operation. And how important is that debrief for you? I think it's huge. I mean, that's what we we learn from, um, you know, you can read all the books you want and whatnot. And again, that's that's huge. That's super important. I mean, I, I encourage people to to read and you know, if I get a chance, I mean, I have like a three or four book reading list. I'd like to throw out that everybody, but um, there's no substitute for actually actually doing it. Um, but unfortunately, what do they say? Uh, um, experience is a good good oh, uh, good judgment comes from experience, experience comes from bad judgment. Right. You know. So yeah, <laughs> that's a it's, great it's, that's it's, a it's great a point. Edged sword.
0: Yeah, that's a great great statement actually. So. Tell me, tell me a little bit about this journey, because you went from 147 to 111.
1: What was that like as um, a boss? Yeah, again, 147 was a tiller company in, in Flatbush. They had a very big response area, and probably aside from uh, high-rise office buildings, I mean, they had high-rise apartment houses, brownstones, frames, queen Anne's taxpayers. Um, you know, I was there for uh, in that house for about six years, and then a spot opened up on 111. Again, they were doing just a little bit more work. Um, So you were chasing that work. Um, Yeah, I I guess. I guess, you know, we we all do. It's like, you know, being a surfer, you know, you're chasing that elusive wave all the time. Uh, 111 was doing a little bit more, um, you know, just like 147. 111 has a great reputation. Uh, They were, like, right in the thick of all the fire duty in Brooklyn at the time. Uh, You know, they were uh, right by 123, Rescue 2, uh, Ladder 102, and whatnot. But uh, you know, it was just something different. They were tower ladder uh, and a few friends who worked there. So uh, I put in for the, the company, got it, and spent six years there and uh, had a great time. Went to a lot of a lot of fires and uh, worked with a lot of crazy guys. And you know,
0: <laughs> so we we talked a little bit off camera about you know the humor at the firehouse and some of the, some of the some of the characters we have. Can you recall you know some of these guys and some of the funny things that happened over throughout your career? The things we can talk about,
1: yeah. Um, <laughs> I have to give that some thought. Stuff that we can <laughs> that we can talk about. Uh, they, they were just just I mean, funny guys. I mean, uh, back from a job, we would critique it. Um, you know, things we did off duty. You know, fishing trips and whatnot. I mean, it was just again, was crazy over the over the top stuff.
0: Um, you know, one of the things you could talk about to our guests. You know, we we have a lot of uh, instrumental instrument stuff. We, we have a lot of. Non firefighters that watch the show because they're just so interested in the job or the culture, and one of the questions I often get is the relationships that are built at the firehouse because it's it, it is a job, it's mm-hmm. a career, right. you know. So it's interesting the the paradox, if you will, you know, because you're firefighters and you're working, but you're always doing stuff off duty. Right. People are always together, like you just said, the fishing trips. I mean, that was a common occurrence, right? Right.
1: Um, you know, I, I think the bonds there are just super, super strong. Um, why do you for, think that for, is chief? I guess it's the, the risk factor. I mean, it's like the the military. I mean, uh, I, I was never in, in combat, you know, thank God. Um, but you know, you talk to guys who, um, saw a lot of combat and whatnot. And there's just, uh, a, a real bond when you're in a situation where, you know, you're sticking your neck out as much as the guy next to you, you're relying on each other. I mean, after a while, I mean, you know, it, you know, it sounds trite, but, um, it's true. Like you know, we don't dwell on it and uh, have you know sit in the kitchen talking flowery, flowery, romantic terms. But you know, it's 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 always it's always known. And uh, <clears throat> I think, um, you know, one word you never hear in the kitchen is which will always amazed me. Is uh, you know, you don't talk about bravery. You know, you right. don't say like oh, like he's a he's a brave fireman. You know, you say he's a good fireman. Good fireman, that, right. yeah, good fireman that that covers a multitude of uh, areas. It means he's he's brave, he's a guy you can count on, you know, he's physically aggressive, you know. And that's the highest honor he could ever be called, right. the FDFNW. Right, the guy a, says he's, he's a good, good fireman. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I've heard that phrase many times, and it stands true. So, Chief, this is an amazing, you know, when I look over my right shoulder, and I know Ray was looking before, too, I mean, I, I, I take a look at this, and, um, you know, it's a piece of wood, and it's got some fronts on it, but, This is, this is a legacy. I mean, this is, this is your whole career at the FDNY and it's amazing. I mean, from being a Proby to being a chief of the rescue battalion is a, is an amazing uh, accomplishment. So I love, I love to go through this, uh, this timeline. So we're just going to keep moving on now. So you you became captain of squad one.
1: Yeah. I I got promoted to captain in, uh, 94. And I put in for third division to cover in midtown Manhattan and, uh, You know, after being in 147 and 111, guys were, you know, saying, what do you want to go to Midtown for? I said, well, I think to round out your career. I mean, um, as busy as the other places are, um, I think Midtown Manhattan is definitely a thinking man's game. Um, You have a ton of high rise there. A lot of emergencies there. A lot of weird emergencies. You have uh, a ton of renovated buildings. I mean, in essence, it's the oldest part of uh, New York City, especially when you start getting south of uh, 14th Street. And I think it just, you know, rounds you out. But uh, I, I covered in the third division for about a year, and I had, uh, had an interview with Chief Ray Downey. And, um, you know, when a uh, good friend of mine, Marty McTeague, got uh, burned in the Conhead steam explosion, he was he used to live right down the block here. I was assigned uh, to him and his family, uh, along with the ILP uh, to be at the hospital. And uh, one day at the hospital, I was walking out with Chief Downey, and uh, he just said, hey, you know, you ready to come over to SOC now? And uh, I said, yeah. So... Uh, Came over to SOC and covered uh, in the rescues and squads for a couple of years until uh, the Squad One opened up, and uh, I got that.
0: What What was it like for you? I mean, you you say that so nonchalant, but what's it like to you? You know, for you looking back now at that moment mm-hmm. when Ray Downing comes to you and says, "Hey, yeah. we're ready for you."
1: It was uh, it was humbling. I mean, uh, you know, just knowing I was going to be uh, covering the rescues. I mean, uh, I mean, it's just like, like when lieutenant Jack Hawkins used to say you can't swing a dead cat on this job without hitting a without hitting a good guy. And, <laughs> right. uh, that was so true. I love in, that. That's in, awesome. In, in, in the rescues, I mean, here you had some of your most, uh, experienced and seasoned firefighters. And, you know, I was going to go there in a position as an officer. And I think that's where it's, it's like an analogy of being like a, you know, second Lieutenant or ensign in the uh, Marine Corps of the Navy. Like, you know, you're right out of school. Um, and all of a sudden, you're with these guys who have 20 years, grizzled old sergeants and stuff like, um, you know, a lot of the tools were new to me and stuff. Um, just go there, even though you're the boss, keep your mouth shut and keep your ears open. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask guys. You know, uh, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And I'll never forget, cover and rescue one uh, Joe Angelini who got killed at the Trade Center. Yeah. You know, legend. Yeah. Every time I'd I'd work, uh, you know, I'd, I'd always want to have a drill, but he was the first guy to pull tools out. And you know, I knew he wasn't going over these tools for his benefit. He was going over them for mine, but he never right. never addressed it that way. And he was one of the most humble, gentlemanly guys I ever I ever worked with. And I think that's important for a uh, guy in a position of, of leadership, especially a you know a young guy who may not have that much experience. You know, uh, don't don't come in there like running your mouth. Like just uh, you know keep it quiet and uh, ask questions, and don't be afraid to say. hey, I don't know because Feynman can spot bullshit in my oh. life, you know.
0: <laughs> yes, they can. I mean, it must have been it must have been somewhat intimidating to go there as an officer with the like you
1: said with these guys. Oh yeah. You know, in that posi- in those positions. Yeah, I mean, you know, you um, you know, I respect to them. I know I got respect back, but you know, internally and you know, like you'd say, Jeez, like, you know, what happens if you know, what am I gonna do if this happens or that happens and uh you know, I guess between uh you know, the guys I work with and uh Good Lord, watching over us. Um, everything, everything worked out.
0: Being a being at uh, Squad One, you recall uh, one of your most challenging jobs that you've been been on
1: on that on that squad. Yeah, I think, um, as a matter of fact, guys talk about it all the time. Um, we had a fire in the Pratt Institute. It's a uh, art school in Brooklyn, and <clears throat> when we got there, um, Chief ordered us to it was, it was in the cellar. Uh, Go down another stairway. The first engine or whatever had gone down a stairway, and it was the wrong stairway to the fire area or something. So, ourselves, rescue two, and uh, I forget what engine company it was. We go down there, and the, the basement was kind of like catacombs, and we had we had a ton of fire down there. So we're doing our thing, and uh, the chief running the fire. I knew him from when uh, when I was lieutenant 111. He was uh, one of the battalion chiefs in the area, and uh, we're down there a while, and all of a sudden they hear him say. Uh, I, you know, squad one, I want you to back everybody out. I said, Chief, you know, we're making progress. He goes, no, I, I want you guys out. I said, okay, Chief. And uh, I grabbed Dennis Mojica. Again, he got killed at the Trade Center. Yeah, another he, great Lieutenant guy. Lieutenant two. And I said, All right, let's gather the guys up. Let's make sure we don't have not left anybody in these little alcoves and whatnot. And, you know, we're doing a thing, doing a orderly retreat, if you will. And uh, Chief, his name is Chief D. You know, very cool, ghetto chief, great guy. He was back on the radio and he says, uh... He called me by name. He says, Donald, don't make me come down here and get you guys. I want you out now. And I'm thinking, like, why is he getting so...
0: He's seen something you guys aren't. So rattled. You know, I'm yeah. figuring,
1: like, we're doing okay in our little part of the world here. So anyway, we, we back out and, you know, get out on the sidewalk. And now I look like we have four floors of fire in this building that was built in the 1880s. Tower ladders are going up and whatnot. So, again, that was a, that was a teaching point. I've, I've used that at drills that, you know, sometimes, you know, you think you know more than the chief. And, you know, maybe once in a while you... You do from you know your little perspective, but most of the time, between all the radio reports that he's focusing on, the fact that he's got a spot in front of the building, he's got the overall big picture. So, like especially when they give you the order to get out, uh, you know nobody likes to be called a coward and nobody likes to retreat. But when they say it's time to leave, you know, always get on the radio and give it the extra college try. Like, hey, we're making progress. You know, we can get this. Give us another two minutes, whatever. You know, I'll try, but once they say that's it, you know, like no, I want you out, like. He's the boss. You know, we're quasi-military organization. That's what, you know, guys have to realize.
0: And that's an awesome point, Chief, because that, that happens today. That happens today. You know, right. we're, and, and I, I'll be honest with you. I've been in that position myself where I know I'm making progress. You know, right. and I want to continue to go, and I, I'm looking at the conditions where we're at. I'm like, it's not bad. It's not right. really that bad, but they're ordering us out. Right. And you get pissed off right away. You, like, get angry, and you're like, God, ah, this is bullshit. You get out to the front lawn, and then you take a look back and go, like, okay. Yeah.
1: I think it's a yeah. it's a it's a two way street. Like you know, don't say, "I think we got it." When a you don't, or b you don't know what's going on around you. And secondly, I think the, you know the chief relies a lot too on the guy he's talking to. If, if he's got a past relationship with you, and uh, he knows you're a you know relatively good fire officer, maybe he's going to put a little more credence in what you say as opposed to maybe a covering guy or a newly minted guy. That's uh, a good point. You know, so uh, and at the end of the day. You know, the guy with the most stripes wins, so, you know, uh, somebody's going to be running the show, and we have, to, we have to follow orders whether we like them or not.
0: Was was it being an, a captain in a squad a, a big deal for you, looking back?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a, uh, one of the units in special operations. Um, you know, we still have a lot of good-natured kidding between, you know, rescues and squads. Like, you know, they call us the JV and all the rest of this. but uh, <laughs> especially now since, uh, you know, we have our, our rescue school at uh, Randall's Island, like everybody comes into the rescues of squads, receives the same training. The only thing, the guys in the squads aren't aren't divers. Okay. You know, but, uh, yeah, I mean, everybody has pretty much the same desire. Granted, it's a different apparatus, and, you know, the guys in the to go to rescues, they tend to have maybe uh, a little more a little more time on the job. But, right. Uh, other than that, I mean, uh, most probably got along like one big happy family. So, so. T- tell
0: me what happens next. I
1: mean, you know, what happens after that?
0: Because um, now you're chief.
1: Yeah, like I got promoted in 2000, and um, I forget what acronym we had for ourselves, but we were, like, the bottom of the list trash, uh, you know. <laughs> so about 21 of us got promoted, and the list died. So I guess they over-promoted. So um, only a couple of guys went to the field, and, like, about 18 of us went down to headquarters for a, a year uh, to do admin stuff, which, you know... Again, Sounds like
0: that's not something you want to do No, at all. no, it
1: was like a death sentence. But... Um, They had a civilian at the time who was overseeing the training, and they had all the department heads come in and speak to us our first day. And I said, well, I'm at the training and whatnot. And I figured, well, let me go talk to this guy, see if I can work work under him for a year as opposed to, like, walking around Randall's Island with a clipboard, counting garbage cans. So, uh, you know, I I worked for him and uh, learned a lot, a lot of the inner workings of the department. And then um, I was just – we had a mentor program – in September of 2001, I was uh, working with another chief. It was almost like a ride-along from from the minted chief in the 9th Battalion, and 7th Battalion. And then uh, 9-11 happened, and kind of the playbook went out the window. So um, I was assigned down there for a few months. And myself, uh, Tommy Richardson, who's now chief operations, um, being that we were former uh, squad captains, Four out of five SOC chiefs got killed at the trade center, so um, we got drafted slash volunteered to come back into uh, special operations. And I guess it was there for about six months. Uh, on paper, I was assigned to three eight battalion, but after a while, uh, you know, after six months, uh, John Norman was running the show. So I asked him. I said, "Look, I said I'm assigned to the three eight. I said, do you want me to stay here, or if not, I'll go back to three 8 And uh, you know, I was on it. John said, "Night." No, I'd like you to stay. So I did and stayed in the rescue battalion until uh, I retired.
0: What was that what was that like for you when you, they're like, hey, you're like you rescue battalion. Tell me what that was like for you. Well, it's a huge um, accomplishment, Chief. It's a you
1: know, huge. A lot of a lot of running around, it's only one rescue battalion. So I mean sometimes you were chasing your tail, going to bricks falling off a building or this, that and the other thing, you know, trying to make it through all five boroughs. But uh, you know, we responded to second alarms are greater and then any type of emergency, so you got to go to a lot of weird things dive jobs uh, uh, people in the trains uh, building collapses and whatnot plus the second alarm. so you got to see a big uh, cross-section of the city and sometimes got challenged with uh, you know some weird weird emergencies where, where there really was no no playbook for and uh, plus uh, being in rescue battalion you know you had the, the rescues and the uh, squads all under your command which uh, you know you couldn't ask for a Bunch of, great bunch of
0: guys. What, Do you remember one incident that uh, you recall being a, a rescue battalion
1: that stands That's, out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a construction worker was working in the 2nd uh, <clears throat> Avenue subway and it was all mucky and stuff down there. This was at night and somehow he got stuck in the, in the mud and it was like quicksand by the time we got there. And again, it took us forever to go like 50 yards, I mean, you were coming out of your boots and everything, and this guy was just sinking lower and lower and there was water filling up, I mean, we had brought uh, a CPA over there to get it on his face, guys are trying to dig him out by hand, we're trying to get ropes around them, mechanical advantages um, And when were you ever trained on that? Well, we weren't Exactly, I, you know, Th- that, that's a crazy part about that job Yeah, right? yeah. so it was kind of uh, I remember that was probably the only time in my life on the job, <clears throat> I'm standing there and I, I consciously started um, saying Hail Marys because I'm saying like I, I, I don't know what we're going to do at this point. I mean, we're trying everything. Um, you well, know, is this guy going to die right in front of us? And it was a combination of, uh, and again, everybody contributed something. Um, there was a small like backhoe down there, but again, you know, when guys are trapped in dirt, you don't want to use power machinery. One of the guys says, "Look," he says, "I can, I can get this thing operated, and we can dig like a little." trench next to the guy to have the water run off and muck come. I said, fine, start that. And then uh, Steve Garrity, who was in the rescue battalion, he, he showed up at the scene and uh, the kind of vac truck that we would normally use there. Originally, the operator said, I'm too far down. I'm not going to get enough suction to help you guys. Um, and we were g- good ways into this operation, probably an hour, hour and a half. And uh, Steve Garrity approached me about that. And I said, the operator said, it's not going to suck. He said, well, just uh, let me go up there and, you know, see if we can't get the hoses down here. We'll try. So it was a combination of, like, digging a trench with the uh, power equipment, the uh, back truck, guys digging with their hands, a few Hail Marys, and uh, eventually we got the guy out. But wow. It was, I mean, it was probably 200 people involved in it. Uh, you know, we're putting plywood ground pads down, you know, for guys to stand on. They were going down in the mud. I mean, it was a very, very involved operation.
0: Looking back at, at that, you know, after the job was over, we just, like, relieved him. And, and what was the conversation oh. like back at? Uh- after that
1: yeah i mean they had a press conference you know which i'm i'm not big on and uh you know you just give the reader's digest version but uh i, I just couldn't couldn't uh, think enough about the guys i mean nobody ever nobody lost it down there. we actually had a couple guys hurt that were digging right next to the guy and their legs were being bent under them you know pulled and ripped tendons and whatnot but uh Again, every, you know, kept their cool, kept offering suggestions and whatnot. And it was just a, uh, it was a great, great group effort. Would you say that was a proud moment for you as a boss? Yeah, but again, not, not personally a proud moment. I mean, pr- 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 I mean to see what you saw. Yeah, proud, proud right. to be part of the New York City Fire Department. Right. And, and to see what these guys did, did collectively. Yeah. And, and
0: that's, that's. I wouldn't even think that. I was, I'm thinking you're going to tell me a fire or you know or a rescue or, you know yeah. or, you know, but but that's that's crazy. I never even thought that yeah. something like that would happen. Yeah. It's by, by and large, I,
1: mean, I think we do not all the time. I mean, you know, everybody has a bad day, but I think by and large we do pretty good with with fires and stuff. But just uh, in the city, especially in Manhattan, I mean, anything you do. Happen. Get some off the wall, off the wall emergencies.
0: I remember Paul telling me that you know New York City will never be, will never be done. They're always working on oh, yeah. it. There's always construction. Yeah. There's always something going on. Absolutely. It's so true, you yeah. know. And you saw that in, yep. in your rescue time. So when you look at your your whole career, right? How would how would you
1: summarize it? Um, blessed, blessed, and lucky. Um, you know, as far as the companies that opened up at the right time. I mean, like they say, everything's timing. Um, but I, I, th- I think blessed. I mean. Not many people um, get to, you know, decide at four years old. You know, you know, I want to be a fireman. I want to be an astronaut. I want to do this and have it come to fruition. And uh, you know, I got I got my wish. You know, so I mean, uh, between getting to do what I always wanted to do and and work with the caliber of people that I got to work with, um, you know, I mean, I've made some lifelong friends, and I think uh, grown as a person. Uh, I haven't worked with these people, and plus the things you you see and whatnot. Um, yeah, just blessed.
0: T- tell me a little bit about your family, um, part of the FTNY. You know, because your family has a lot to do with your job, and you know, your wife and you were married. You're married forty years. Yeah, it's it's um, awesome. What
1: yeah, I mean, like? she uh, you know tolerates the man cave and whatnot, and uh, it's, it's actually kind of funny. My my daughters are so used to hearing me talk on the phone with two or three of my friends once a week. A guy's coming over here, and uh, we have a house in Pennsylvania. And I guess it was a couple of labor days ago, my middle daughter, my youngest daughter, they're sitting out on the deck, and they both had, they were wearing the job sweatshirts, and I got them for Christmas. So uh, my son-in-law comes out, and he says, uh, oh, I brought some cigars up, you know, so him and I fire two cigars up. And meanwhile, my daughters, I mean, all three of my daughters are pretty funny. So... Uh, my two daughters say, oh, why, why can't we have cigars? So you're over 21, you, know, you don't smoke, but if you want a cigar. So we give him a cigar, and then they go into this act with their job shirts on, smoking a cigar, and they're going like, oh, yeah, you know, you, you know, you know Jimmy McCarthy, that asshole? You know, he screwed me out of overtime the other day. And, and they went on for like a half hour. I was, la- I was laughing so hard. I mean, they had, they had the terminology down. Uh, All the expressions, you know. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. We I was working at. They came around the corner. It was out four windows. I had the knob and like, uh, you know. I mean, it it was unbelievable. And I I kept telling them, I said, you guys should do like a a YouTube thing like that. You know, get some fake mustaches for yourself and. uh." But but the reason I asked that is,
0: and you just you just said it. You know, your family is just as much a part of this. All these years, your your career legacy. They're right there. Really? And the fact that they mimicked you, you know, mimicked that, right. is, they've been listening. Oh, yeah. They've been yeah. watching. They saw, they followed your career, which is an amazing, uh, and it's a funny story, but it <laughs> it's a really funny story, but it just shows you how true it is that, right. that they're right there with you along yeah. the way.
1: No, they've been very supportive, and, uh, you know, 9-11 was a tough time, and, uh, right. you know, my wife was uh, very supportive and whatnot, and, uh, you know, especially during that period. I mean, if it wasn't for... Them like you know you're walking around like just uh, you know talking to yourself going to funerals and working at the pile and then down in the firehouse and whatnot. So uh, it was great to have a you know good family behind yeah. me.
0: I mean, what were you? You were you were doing administrative administrative stuff during 9/11,
1: right? Uh, right before 9/11, right. and then during 9/11. Were
0: you working that day, Chief?
1: No, I was. Um, it's like another story I like to tell. Um, I, I'm no Walter boy, but you know I'm practicing Catholic and whatnot, and. Uh, I could probably count on one hand <clears> the <throat> number of times I've gone to mass during the week. On 9-11, my wife uh, went to work. Kids were in school. I'm sitting here reading the paper. It's about quarter to nine, and I don't know what possessed me, but I said, you know, I think we go to nine o'clock mass. Church is right down the block. And you know, I got a little uh, handheld scanner in my car, like, you know, a lot of buffy firemen. And as I pull up to the church, I hear him announce a third alarm at the trade center, and...
0: This is as you're arriving to the church,
1: yeah. And I said, nah, you know, maybe I'll stand and listen to this instead of going to the church. that's ah, you know, probably highest flight we've had them before. Went to church. It's a weekday mass. You know, in and out in 20 minutes. And as I'm walking out, my my neighbor's wife, uh, Marty McTeague, who got burned, kind of explosion. I'm talking with her, and the, and the guy walks past and says, how oh, did you hear what happened? A plane hit the trade center." And I'm thinking like a little Cessna 172 yeah. or something, and right. you know, get in the car, not hearing anything on the scanner, and you know. Walked in the back door, turn the TV on, and, you know, saw what we all saw and, you know, started getting my uniform and whatnot. Called my wife and said, you know, I'm going in. I don't know when I'll be home. And I uh, was down, down there for the next, you know, like 36 hours. The question
0: I always had, in a, and to this day, I don't I don't even know how to answer, um, or anybody can answer, but how do you take that much experience? All those guys that were lost in one one moment, mm-hmm. one day, gone, all that experience, and how does the FDNY
1: recover from that? Yeah, it was... Um, it was tough uh, between uh, the people we, we lost. I mean, in, in the rescue battalion, rescue battalion alone, of the 343 guys killed, 93 were from the rescues of squads. Um, you know, the experience level was huge. And then, you know, within a year and a half, two years after that, a lot of guys were just getting out because they had, you know, their numbers were up uh, as far as overtime and having over 20 and stuff. Um, so it was it was definitely a building process for a couple of those years. But again, to the, the credit of the fire department and the caliber of people we get, I think it was very, resi- uh, it showed a lot of resilience. And um, I think, by and large, the people who come on the fire department are highly motivated. Uh, they know what they're signing up for. And uh, again, the guys that came on after 9-11, I give them a, them a lot of credit because, I mean, that, um, that was really the, you know, the rubber met the road, you know, losing that many guys and you just take a look at the fire service in general in the, in the country, uh, there was a real uptick in the number of people who wanted to join, like the volunteer fire service and, and everything. And again, I think even, even there, like people thought it was just a matter of like putting a gear on and wearing a t-shirt. Like, like you say, everyone's be a fireman until it's time to do shit. You
0: know? <laughs> so true. Chief, it was an absolute honor to, uh, to talk with you. It was Thank cool you. to watch and listen to this amazing journey. Um, before I let you off that hot seat, uh, I just just want to ask you this last question, and that is what advice would you give someone right now looking to become a firefighter, career, volunteer, whatever what would you say to them for them to be successful
1: um, take it take it very serious, uh, whether it's volunteer paid I'm, I'm a big fan of telling people you only get killed once doing this line of work, so it doesn't matter whether you're a firefighter in new york l a Chicago. Dunk Iowa, you know, uh, Sayreville, New Jersey, um, you know, you cross the threshold of that fire building, you're putting yourself at risk. So take it seriously, um, you know, research what you want to do, maintain physical conditioning, and uh, for all means when you get on, like never never stop learning, you know, and con- constantly train.
0: And you mentioned three bro- books you'd like to mention. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Frank Brannigan's book, uh, Building Construction for the Fire Service; Vinnie Dunn's book, Collapse of Burning Buildings; and John Norman's book, uh, Handbook, uh, Handbook for the uh, Fire Officer's Handbook for the Fire Service.
0: Chief, I appreciate it very much. Okay. It was Good. awesome to talk in, and I really appreciate you uh, having me and Ray in your home. Uh, we had New York pizza. Ray yeah. was pretty excited about the New York there, pizza. There,
1: there is no other pizza.
0: Uh, there is no other pizza here. <laughs> you heard right from the chief here. So. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This is episode 40 of Pin the Cube Productions, and we are in New York. Again, you don't want to miss this one. A lot more to come. Stay with us.